Greetings to each of you in our precious Savior's name, the one who died for us, the one who washed us from our sins in his own precious blood. In the words of Peter, blessed be God and blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to his abundant mercy has begotten us again unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance incorruptible and undefiled and that fadeth not away, reserved in heaven for you who are kept by the power of God through faith unto salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. Wherein ye greatly rejoice, though now for a season, if need be, ye are in heaven as through manifold temptation, that the trial of your faith being much more precious than of gold, that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found in the praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen ye love. Though now ye see him not, yet believing ye rejoice with joy unspeakable and full of glory. Receiving the end of your faith, even the salvation of your souls. Those are precious, precious words. Because of Jesus' death and his resurrection, we have a lively hope. We have a reason to hope. We have a reason to live. We have hope beyond just now. We have a living hope. I too was thinking of the anniversary of our sister Carolyn's death. And it's because of Jesus Christ and the faith that she had in him that we have reason to have hope for her. It's the reason that we have hope for any of us. I was also mindful of the words, and this might have something to do with the sermon, where it says in Romans chapter 5, Therefore, being justified by faith. Justified by faith. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom also we have access into this grace wherein we stand and rejoice in hope of the glory of God. And not only so, but we glory in tribulations, knowing that our tribulation worketh patience, and patience experience and experience hope. And hope maketh not ashamed, because the love of God is shed abroad in our hearts. By the Holy Ghost, which he has given to us. I invite your attention for a sermon this morning to Acts chapter 15. Now we've been following the apostles as they have been trusting the promise. And they have been following Jesus' command in Acts chapter 1 verse 8. This was before his ascension from the Mount of Olives. He said, but... Ye shall receive power after the Holy Ghost has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses. You shall be witnesses unto me, both in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. They had received the gift of the Holy Spirit as Jesus had promised and as the Old Testament prophet Joel had promised as well. And it shall come to pass afterward, Joel writes, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your old men shall dream dreams, and your young men shall see visions. And also upon the servants and upon my handmaids, 
in those days will I pour out my spirit. And the spirit of God was poured out at the day of Pentecost. And now God's people were going everywhere preaching the gospel, beginning at Jerusalem at Pentecost. When Peter preached and those thousands were converted and they were added to the church. The story of the book of Acts is the story of the apostles preaching of the kingdom of God growing in spite of opposition by the Jews and by the Romans, in spite of opposition and torture. And they were, as Jesus had promised, and as Jesus had commanded, they were his witnesses. They had seen and been personally changed. They had personally experienced the power of the resurrected Messiah. They had experienced what newness of life walking in the power of the resurrection is, and they weren't backing down for anything or anybody. They were faithful witnesses. Now, last time I had preached, we had looked at how Paul and Barnabas go on what is now known as Paul's first missionary journey. And returning to Antioch, they report to the church all that God had done for him. And an interesting part of Paul's teaching as he was preaching in his first missionary journey, I didn't talk much about the last time I preached, and I'd like to look at that just a little bit because it, it's, it's really an important doctrine, but it's, it's not just a really important doctrine. It's a vital, it's an essential doctrine of our Christian faith. But it plays a big part in what happens in our passage this morning in Acts chapter 15. So let's look at Acts chapter 13, verses 38 and 39. He's preaching to the um, in the synagogue in Antioch in Pisidia. Be it known unto you, therefore, men and brethren, that through this man is preached unto you the forgiveness of sins. And by him, all that believe are justified from all things from which he could not be justified by the law of Moses. I think we should think about this a little bit. By him, by Jesus Christ, all those who believe are justified from all things. Now there's a famous verse in Isaiah 53 that's often talked about and it's often pointed out that the verse begins and ends with the, with the word all. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And I was reminded of this verse because the word all is twice in this verse as well. By him, all that believe are justified from all things. So what does this word mean to be justified? What does this big word justification mean? Well, this is something that we should know because like I said, we believe and I hope you believe that justification by faith is an essential part of the Christian faith. Without the doctrine of justification by faith, we cannot please God. Without being justified by faith, 
You cannot please God. He that comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. This lies at the very heart of the gospel. So what does this big word justification mean? It means to be made right. It means to be freed from sin. Okay? It's not complicated. But to be justified means to be made right. It means to be freed from sin. We could say that Paul was preaching that all who believe in Jesus are made right and they are freed from sin. Now Jesus in his conversation with Nicodemus, with Nicodemus that's recorded in John 3. In verse 16 he says, For God so loved the world, For God so loved the world. For God so loved the world. That he gave his only begotten son. That whosoever believeth in him. Should not perish but have everlasting life. For God sent not his son into the world to condemn the world. But that the world through him might be saved. So the question is who is saved? Well, in Jesus' words, it's the one who believes. Who is justified? Who is freed from sin? It's the one who believes. And so in more theological terms, in the terms that we're talking about, is that this is justification by faith. This is being saved by believing in Jesus. It means to be made right. It means to be made free from sin by believing in Jesus. So, of course, the obvious question is, what does believing in Jesus really mean? Does it just mean that he's a character that lived some 2,000 years ago and we read about him in the history books and in the, in the pages of the Bible and that's as far as it goes? Obviously not. There's a lot of people who believe that Jesus existed, but not with a saving kind of faith, I don't think. So what does it mean to have faith in Jesus. I'd like to define it this way. First of all, it means to believe what he says. It means to believe what he said about himself, that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And that there's no way that anyone can come to God except through him. To believe in Jesus means to believe that. To believe in Jesus means that we believe that he is the revelation of God to man. We heard about that in our devotions this morning. Thank you, Mark. It means that he is the living bread. He is the one who sustains us spiritually in this life, in the world. But perhaps most of all, it means that we believe that he is the son of God. This is Jesus' words before the high priest in Mark uh, 14. I forget what the passage is, but it means he, he was asked... Are you the son of God? And Jesus says, I am. He says, and hereafter you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming in the clouds of heaven. All right. To believe in Jesus means that we believe that about him, that he is the son of God and that he is God and that he will come someday someday coming in the clouds of heaven. To believe in Jesus 
means that in sacrificing his life, he became the sacrifice for the sins of the world. To believe in Jesus means that he rose again, means to believe that he rose again from the dead as he said he would and as the prophets had prophesied about him. Second, to believe in Jesus means to trust him. It means to trust his sacrifice to be sufficient for our sins and that trusting his sacrifice, we stop. We no longer try to establish our righteousness for ourselves and by ourselves in trusting his sacrifice, we rest in him. And thirdly, to believe, to have faith in Jesus, it means that we are bound by gratitude to obey him, to follow him, not in a servile, have to kind of a sense, but in a free and open and in a joyful submission to his commands. It means that we, because we have experienced his love, his forgiveness, his kindness, and his grace, we return our lives to him. We are no longer bound by sin to serve it, but we are bound by love to serve him. That's what it means to have faith in Christ. It means to believe what he says about himself and who he is. It means to trust him for our salvation. It means to follow him in life. And... Paul says in our passage, this is something that could not be accomplished by following the law of Moses. So, of course, we have to ask, what was the purpose of the law of Moses then? I'd like to put this in three terms as well. The purpose of the law of Moses was to serve, to show something of God's character, perhaps most clearly his abhorrence of sin. The other purpose of the law, another purpose of the law was to show something of man's character. Perhaps most clearly his tendency to sin. And another purpose of the law was to point to what God was going to do about it. But a person couldn't be justified he couldn't be made right. He couldn't be set freed from sin by the observance of the law. The law was never intended to save a person by mere observation. The Old Testament saints were saved because of their faith, just as we are. Turn to Romans chapter 3 for a short passage. But now the righteousness of God without the law is manifested, being witnessed by the law and the prophets. Even the righteousness of God, which is by, the, which is by faith of Jesus Christ unto all and upon all that believe. For there is no difference, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God has set forth to be a propitiation, that's a sacrifice through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say at this time, his righteousness, that he might be, that he might be just and the justifier of him which believeth in Jesus. Where is boasting then? It is excluded by what law of works? Nay, but by the law of faith. Therefore we conclude that a man is justified by faith without the deeds of the law. 
Is he a God of the Jews only? Is he not also of the Gentiles? Yea, of the Gentiles also, seeing it is one God which shall justify the circumcision by faith and the uncircumcision through faith. Do we make then void the law through faith? God forbid. Yea, we establish the law. All right. So the idea is that justification by faith was for the Old Testament saints, and it is for us today as well. All right, now look at uh, verse 40 in Acts chapter 13. So Paul is saying that by him all that believe are justified from all things, from which he could not be justified by the law of Moses. Beware, therefore, lest that which has come upon you, which is spoken of in the prophets, behold, ye despisers, and wonder and perish, for I work a work in your days, a work which ye shall in no wise believe, though a man declare it unto you. So Paul's warning here in verse 40 and 41 is to those who believe, who don't believe what God was going to accomplish through Jesus. What God was going to accomplish through Jesus was that Jesus was going to justify those who believe in him from all things, from all the sins and things that they had committed. Jesus was going to set them free from that. And Paul gives us a warning. He gives his audience a warning. He says, Be, beware, therefore, lest that which has come upon you, which is spoken of by the prophets. And then he quotes Habakkuk, where Habakkuk prophesies that he that God will someday send the Chaldeans to accomplish his will. And in this case, the Chaldeans, the, God's will for the Chaldeans was to carry the children of Israel captive. He raised them up, Habakkuk, Habakkuk says, that bitter and hasty nation, and they marched through the land to bring judgment on them and to correct them. Habakkuk says this, Art thou not from everlasting, O Lord, my God, my Holy One? We shall not die, O Lord. Thou hast ordained them for judgment. And, O mighty God, thou hast established them for correction. He's referring to the Chaldeans. Paul uses that warning. He uses that passage as a warning for us. He wants us to learn that sometimes God works in ways that we don't expect him to. And when he does, we're best off not to reject it. And so, Paul is saying, he is warning us to not reject this truth of justification by faith. Many of the Jews in the apostles, they were not ready to receive the truth of the gospel. And even though at its core, the law anticipated what Jesus came to do. In fact, it would have been ineffective without him. They refused to accept this doctrine of justification by faith. They wanted to adhere to justification by the law, which thing could never be accomplished. And Paul gives them this clear warning. And I think we should take this just as seriously as Paul wanted them to take it. Justification by faith is a teaching that we neglect at our own peril. It's essential to the gospel. I'd like to read a passage in Romans chapter 10. 
Brethren, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they might be saved. For I bear them record that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness, and going about to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted themselves unto the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone that believeth. For Moses describeth the righteousness which is of the law, that the man which doeth these things shall live by them. But the righteousness which is of faith speaketh on this wise, say not in thine heart, who shall ascend to heaven, that is to bring Christ down from above, or who shall descend from the, into the deep, that is to bring up Christ again from the dead. What saith it? The word is nigh thee, even in thy mouth and in thine heart, that is the word of faith which we preach, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and shalt believe in thine heart that God has raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. For with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the scripture says, Whosoever believeth on him shall not be ashamed, for there is no difference between the Jew and the Greek. For the Lord God, for the same Lord is over, for the same Lord over all is rich unto all that call upon him. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That's justification by faith. It's available for Jew and Gentile. For all. For whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. So this is what's happening in Antioch. This is what Paul is preaching. And this provides us a background to begin our study in Acts chapter 15. Now, I know that was kind of a long introduction. All right, I want to read a passage here in Acts chapter 15. Certain men which came down from Judea taught the brethren and said, Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, ye cannot be saved. When therefore Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and disputation with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain other of them should go up to Jerusalem and to the apostles and elders about this question. And being brought on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenice and Samaria, declaring the conversion of the Gentiles, and they caused great joy among all the brethren. And when they were come to Jerusalem, they were received of the church and of the apostles and elders, and they declared all the things that God had done with them. But there was certain of the sect of the Pharisees which believed, saying that it was needful to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. And the apostles and elders came together for to consider this matter. And when there had been much disputing, Peter rose up and said unto them, Men and brethren, ye know how that a good while ago God made choice among us that the Gentiles by my mouth should hear the word of the gospel and believe. And God which knoweth the hearts bear them witness giving them the Holy Ghost even as he did unto us, and put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. Now therefore, why tempt ye God to put a yoke upon the neck of the disciples, which neither our fathers nor we were able to bear? But we believe through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ we shall be saved even as they. Then all the multitude kept silence and gave audience to Barnabas and Paul, declaring what miracles and wonders God had wrought among the Gentiles by them. And after that they had held their peace, James answered, saying, Men and brethren, hearken unto me. Simeon hath declared, that's Simon or Peter. Simeon hath declared how God at first did declare the, did visit the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And to, to this agree the words of the prophets, as it is written, I will return 
And will build again the tabernacle of David, which is fallen down. And I will build again the ruins thereof. And I will set it up that the residue of men might seek after God and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things known unto God or all his works from the beginning of the world. Wherefore, my sentence is that we trouble them not, which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write unto them that they abstain pollutions, that they abstain from pollutions of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. For Moses of old time hath in every city them that preach him being read in the synagogues every Sabbath day. Then it pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church to send chosen men of their own company to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, namely Judas, surnamed Barsabas, and Silas, chief men among the brethren. And they wrote letters by them after this manner. The apostles and elders and brethren send greeting unto the brethren which are of the Gentiles in Antioch and Syria and Cilicia. Forasmuch as we have heard that certain which went out from us have troubled you with words, subverting your souls, saying ye must be circumcised and keep the law, to whom we gave no such commandment. It seemed good unto us, being assembled with one accord, to send chosen men unto you with our beloved Barnabas and Paul, men that have hazarded their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. We have sent therefore Judas and Silas, who shall tell you the same things by mouth. For it seemed good to the Holy Ghost and to us, to lay upon you no greater burden than these necessary things, that ye abstain from meats offered to idols, and from blood, and from things strangled, and from fornication, from which if ye do well, I'm sorry, from which if ye keep yourselves, ye shall do well. Fare ye well. So when they were dismissed, they came to Antioch, and when they gathered the multitude together, they delivered the epistle, which when they read, they rejoiced for the consolation and Judas and Silas, being prophets also themselves, exhorted the brethren with many words and confirmed them. And after they had tarried there a space, they were let go in peace from the brethren unto the apostles. All right. So we had left off with Paul and Barnabas, having just come back from their first missionary journey, and they were in Antioch. This was Antioch in Syria. And it says there were certain men who came from Judea to Antioch and taught that unless you be circumcised according to the law of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now, this caused an uproar. This is in the beginning of chapter 15. Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension. Dissension means uproar. This caused no small uproar. Paul and Barnabas disputed them sharply. And so this discussion first started in Antioch, but then the believers at Antioch said, all right, take this to the apostles in Jerusalem. And so Paul and Barnabas were dispatched to take this question to the elders and the apostles in Jerusalem. And as they went on their way, they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, and they told the believers how they had the Gentiles were being converted, and they caused great joy among the brethren. And sure enough, when they talk about this in Jerusalem, there are Pharisees who believe. Now think about that. There are Pharisees who believe. We usually think of the Pharisees as being the ones who resisted the gospel. But here there are Pharisees that believe. 
but they were still clinging to the law of Moses. Now, if you stop and think about it, is that this idea of justification by faith can't be hybridized. It can't be compromised. This is an either-or proposition, and this is just exactly what the disputation was. And this is why the Pharisees that believed had to back down. Because you are either going to be justified by the works of the law, it's what they thought, but it couldn't be accomplished, or you're going to be justified by faith. This was the question. And so when they talk about this in Jerusalem, these Pharisees who believe, they agree with the law teachers in Antioch. I wondered if it wasn't the same people, but I, I don't know. So we have what we know of as the Jerusalem Council is convened to answer this question. How do we think about the law of Moses? How do we think about justification by faith? Now, there's a few things that stand out to me. Think about who's there to begin with. And think about how the things are discussed. And then I think we should think, perhaps most importantly, that, it's, that a decision is reached. All right? So there's this question, a doctrinal question, but it has practical implications, right? So who's there? It's the apostles and elders. And if you look at verse 4, they were received by the church. If you look at verse 22, uh, the outcome pleased the apostles and elders and the whole church. So it appears that the whole church was there. So that's who was there. And what happened? Why well, it says there was much disputing. Verse 7 says there was much disputing. Now I think we need to be careful here. That the much disputing was not an end in itself. Okay? The much disputing was to try to come to an understanding. They had to talk about this stuff. They had to hear everybody. There was much disputing. That means that there was much discussion. There was considerable and long argument. There was mutual questioning, Strong's defines it as. Discussion and disputation and reasoning. Now, I don't know how this all was, but I expect that it was pretty lively. Now, I haven't seen a lot of Middle Eastern culture. I've seen just a little bit. I remember one time we were outside the, um, the office where Donovan works. And there was two men just going at each other. Loud. You could hear them clearly from down the street. It looked like somebody didn't agree with where somebody else was parked. And if there would be a disputation like that in the streets of Harrisburg, everybody back out because the next thing you would know, there's, there's going to be shots fired. All right, But, but not so in, in the Middle Eastern culture. All right, This is how they communicate. They get into each other's faces and they let things be heard. I suspect that that's a little bit what was happening here. And if the confrontation that Paul records that he had with Peter 
when Peter didn't want to eat with Gentiles, I suspect that they were in each other's face because Paul writes that he confronted him to his face publicly. All right? So, I suspect that this is a little bit how this Jerusalem council was conducted, but I don't know. Like I said, I suspect. But we have two examples of the sides of the argument that prevailed. The first is by Peter. He's called Simeon here by Paul or by James. He's called Simeon, but the first is by Peter. Peter stood up and said, and then he uh, recounts the story of how Cornelius and his house heard and received the gospel. And Peter says how that God bore witness to the genuineness of their conversion by giving them the Holy Ghost the same way as the Jewish believers had received the Holy Ghost at Pentecost. And then he says, verse 9, that God put no difference between us and them, purifying their hearts by faith. There's something here that I'd like to highlight, and this is perhaps just maybe technical, but I think it's something that we should be thinking about. It says their hearts were purified by faith. Now, I know that much of Christianity defines justification as being declared right, almost as if being declared right is something different from being made right. It's almost as if there's room for a declaration to be there when the actual fact isn't so. That the heart is declared right when it is still in sin. Now, to be declared right is good and it's accurate when the heart is purified. All right, when the heart is purified. Their hearts were purified by faith. So the declaration that they were justified, that they were declared right, was accurate. But let's don't make space for the declaration of being justified, being declared right to be empty, devoid of the actual condition of the heart. When the heart is purified by faith, then it is justified. It is made right. It is freed from sin. So I have intentionally defined justification earlier in the sermon as being made right to avoid that discrepancy. It wouldn't have to be a discrepancy if we wouldn't make it one. Okay? To be declared right is good and accurate when the heart is purified by faith. But the the illustration that has been used is we, we hear of this robe of righteousness that God gives to a sinner. All right? And in our minds, we think of that sometimes as something that does not reach into the sinner's heart. And he is just given the rope to cover up a dastardly heart. 
But it is not so. When God gives a robe of righteousness, that robe of righteousness changes a person. And the declaration of his forgiveness from sin and of his freedom from sin reaches down into the depths of his heart. And he has changed. He is a new man. He has received the new birth. He is a new creature. Old things are passed away and all things are become new. All right, so let's make sure that we understand this, just, this doctrine of justification by faith to reach into the depths of a person and change who he is. Their hearts were purified by faith. And so now the question that Peter poses is a good one. Why would anyone test God? Why would anyone tempt God and impose on the Gentiles something that neither the fathers nor we were able to bear? Remember the purpose of the law? It was to show God's character. It was to show man's sinfulness. And it was to point forward to what God was going to do about it. The purpose of the law was like what Paul wrote to the Galatians that the law served as a schoolmaster, as a tutor, to drive us to Christ. But it was unbearable. It was not something that could be accomplished. It was unbearable in Peter's terms. And so Peter goes on to say that it's because of Jesus' grace, through his love, through his long-suffering, through his provision, that anyone, Jew or Gentile, and the apostles themselves could be saved. And so it's, it's almost as if this rambunctious crowd, when Peter starts talking, becomes quiet and starts listening. Peter got their attention. It says, all the multitude kept silence. And then they gave audience to Barnabas and, and Paul. And now the second argument is presented by Paul and Barnabas. And they tell the church what God had done among the Gentiles by them, how they had preached in Antioch and Pisidia and the other places and where, where it says that many of the Gentiles were, as many as of the Gentiles as were deigned to eternal life believed. And after they'd come back, if you recall, from their first missionary journey, they rehearsed to the church how that God had opened the door of faith to the Gentiles. I suppose that Paul and Barnabas' discussion here was a lot like that and so now James gets up it seems that he's the moderator or something like that and now this is James who is the son of Joseph and Mary Jesus half-brother if you please the other James James the son of Zebedee was killed by Herod now I think we appreciate James's practical sense when it comes to theological matters this is the same James that wrote the epistle Read his epistle. I think you'll know what I mean when James is just a practical, down-to-earth, really um, relatable kind of person. He writes things like this. He says, you can bless a person, but until you actually meet their needs, your blessing is empty. I'm saying that in my own words, but that's, that's the idea. He says, the engrafted word is able to save your souls. In other words, if the word is received and it finds a place of dwelling, then it will save your soul. He says things like, whoever is the friend of the world is the enemy of God, and so on. And I, I think we sense that same practicality 
here. It's so typical of the apostle's way of thinking. He grounds the solution to the question, what do we do about justification by faith when we were so used to the law? What do we do about it? And he grounds his solution in the words of the prophets. And he quotes a passage from Amos chapter 9. After this, I will return and will build again the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and I will build again the ruins thereof, and I will set it up, that the residue of men might seek after the Lord, and upon and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called, saith the Lord, who doeth all these things. I am thrilled by the fulfillment of that prophecy. The rebuilt tabernacle, the rebuilt tabernacle that Amos was talking about was being formulated right here in the book of Acts. And it's open now to the Gentiles. The rebuilt tabernacle, the residue of men might seek after the Lord and all the Gentiles upon whom my name is called. All right. James makes the observation that God knew what he was doing all along. Isn't that just amazing? And so, James proposes a good common sense but theologically sound solution. And not only that, he is sensitive to the believing Pharisees. Wherefore, my sentence is that we trouble them not, which turn from the Gentiles, which from among the Gentiles are turned to God, but that we write unto them, that they abstain from the pollutions of idols and from fornication and from things strangled and from blood. For Moses of old time hath in every city of them that preach him being read in the synagogue every Sabbath day. And the apostles and elders had come together to consider the matter. And the solution was agreed to by the whole church. And so there was letters sent out to the Gentile believers. Now there are a few things that I think that we should be thinking about here. Some lessons to learn. All right. First of all, who's there? How are things discussed? Perhaps most importantly, that everyone is pleased by the outcome, that there is a decision made that is amicable to each one. Who's there? I don't know exactly who all was there and who and for how long. This occasion is recorded in 30-some verses but I suspect this took more than a day. It could have taken more than a week. I don't know how long the Jerusalem council was. But the whole church was involved and it was pleased by the decision. It pleased the apostles and elders with the whole church. All right. So the whole church was involved to some extent, even though perhaps the bulk of the discussion was carried on by the apostles and elders. I think that's an important point. Sometimes it takes a while to get everyone on the same page. I appreciate that we have been able to bring to conclusions questions with the voice of the, the whole church or by consensus. And I think that is something that we, should, that we dare not underestimate the power of. I think we should value and maintain and practice that. Is that perhaps the discussion could, can, can, in, can formulate itself in, in different ways, but that at the end of it, the whole church 
is okay with it, that the whole church is pleased with it. So how are the things discussed? So this discussion was lively, like I suggested, but it had structure. If not at first, it did towards the end. Now, I think probably because of the offices they held, I think, and and probably more importantly, was because of the investment that they had put into the ministry to the Gentiles that Peter and Paul's and Barnabas's words carried the day. They had the people's ear. They had first-hand knowledge of what God was doing among the Gentiles, and they had hazarded their lives for the sake of the gospel. And so they were given attention. Just as attentive audience was given to Peter and Paul and Barnabas because they had invested the most. I think also there was credit given to the elders, to the voice of experience. The elders seemed to be an important part of the discussion. I think we do well to follow that example. Now I guess I'm somewhere between old and young. They label me as middle age. So maybe I'm in a good position to propose that the younger defer their opinion to the elder. It's not just my opinion. This is what Peter writes. Likewise, ye younger, submit yourselves unto the elder. Yea, all of you be subject one to another and be clothed with humility, for God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. Here's a little rule that will serve you well, especially as young people. Not everything that you want to know do you want to discover for yourselves. Not everything that you should know can you afford to learn for yourself. And that rule applies to discussions in the body as well. Older folks have a perspective that it's impossible for younger people to have. And we do well to keep that in mind in discussions in the church. I think we do well as younger to defer to the elder. Now I have a few things to say about my role, if you please, in any discussion that we as a church might have. I feel keenly that I need the wisdom that James had, and I'm keenly aware that I don't have it. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, he says, covet earnestly the best gifts, but I also want to learn the more excellent way, and that is the way of love. I am aware, and I'm sure I'm not nearly aware, I'm, I'm sure I'm not nearly as aware that I should be of my faults and shortcomings, and I feel keenly the need of your prayers, but I deeply appreciate the way we've been able to work through things as a church. Without your grace, without your encouragement and support, without your submission to each other, without love and without commitment to each other, we can never function as a body. And so at the end of the discussion, the whole body was pleased. A decision is reached, and I think that that is the point here. I wonder how long it took. I, I don't know, all right? But it took time. It didn't just happen in 35 verses, and you can read it in five minutes, okay? It didn't just happen in five minutes. Now, here, here's a question. Do you ever wonder with me about the ones who had been insisting on law-keeping? How is it that they were pleased? It says that the church was pleased, and I take it that these believing Pharisees were part of this group. How is it that they were pleased? Well, that right there is called submission. 
to be pleased when your opinion is not the one that carries the day is true submission. But I think there's also something else here that's going on. I think there's a gesture of love to the ones who thought the law should be kept that should get our attention. If you stop and think about it, three of the four necessary things laid on the church were not direct commands of Jesus. To not commit fornication, that's that most base of sin so prevalent in the world, was a direct command of the law, but it was reestablished and even amplified by Jesus when he denounced even the desire to commit fornication as sin. So not committing fornication is pretty clear a law of Christ. But where did the command to abstain from idols and from blood and from things strangled that James proposes and that the church agrees to, where did that come from? Well, it says, because Moses of old time hath in every city those that preach him. So the burden was placed on the church for those three if you please, extra New Testament, extra outside of Jesus' teaching burden was placed in the church because of those that regarded Moses' law. The church knew that they were justified by faith, but they were willing to walk in love. They were sensitive to those whose conscience was informed by, by Moses' law, even though they knew that they were justified by faith. And for more on that subject, read Romans 14 and 1 Corinthians 8 and 9. Yes, there were those whose thinking needed to be corrected, and they had to yield. That's for sure. But the way the church demonstrated love, I think is what made joyful submission easier. So we promote and we espouse and we preach and we teach and we believe the glorious doctrine of justification by faith and we better never lose a good grasp of that. It is essential because without faith it is impossible to please him. And just as in the apostles' day, doctrinal teaching has practical implications. It works out in shoe leather. The question becomes, how shall we then live? So I think this passage sets a good pattern for us. May God give us his grace to walk in love, to work through whatever for questions that we might have, knowing that we are justified by faith, but knowing that life is practical and church life gets really real sometimes, there's two keys that are pertinent when it comes to that. Maybe three. First is thorough discussion. Second is submission. And third is love. May God give us grace to that end. Let's kneel for prayer.